This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations at Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone because individually we're great, but together we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. So it's certainly the case that modern genetics has demonstrated, first of all, that there's no biological basis for the, for the scientific understanding of race, which is a really, really good thing and an important message to get across. Um, but in and of itself, science isn't the only thing that's going to save us here. We need to be mindful of our own history as well. And just to what degree Galton, his science and his ways of thinking have shaped our ideas today. You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hello, I'm Alexander McNamara, online editor at BBC Science Focus. Not so long ago, English scientists believed that they could study differences between people and that certain ethnicities were better or worse than others. Of course, white Europeans were put at the top of any list. In the 19th century, anthropologist and statistician Francis Galton took this even further when he coined the term eugenics, the idea that science could better the human race by promoting the spread of certain genes deemed good and by halting the distribution of those deemed bad. Now, while these Victorian ideas have since been refuted and discarded by the scientific community, there are those in society that turn to race science in an attempt to justify their bigotry and racism. Supadra Das has spent the last eight years as a museum creator for the science collections at the University College London, specialising in the history of scientific racism and the history of eugenics. She tells our editorial assistant Amy Barrett how Francis Galton's ideas spread through Victorian society and why it's important to understand science's racist history in order for us to move forward. 
My name is Subhadra Das. I am a, a writer, historian, sometime comedian, um, and I specialize in the history and philosophy of science in the 18th and 19th centuries, particularly in the science of race and eugenics. Um, and uh, my day job is that I am the, one of the curators of the science collections at University College London. And as a curator, what does that involve? Well, at UCL, it involves making sure that um, the museum collections that we have are accessible, both physically and intellectually, uh, to as many people as possible. So we use our collections um, a lot for teaching, um, but we also make them accessible to researchers. And we also do public engagement. So things like exhibitions, podcasts, um, we try to, uh, when we can, research our collections and share the stories that we find in them. You mentioned eugenics. Just tell me a little bit about how that that relates to your current role. Well, I had had never meant to become a historian of eugenics. It kind of turned out to be an occupational hazard because Mm -hmm. in 2012, when I first started in this job, I was put in charge of a thing called the Galton Collection. Um, And that's the collection of Sir Francis Galton, who is probably the most famous Victorian scientist not a lot of people had heard of. Um, I had never heard of him until I started curating the collection. Mm. And Galton is, um, well, he's many things. Uh, He was an explorer in Africa. He was a meteorologist, a statistician, a biologist. Um, And he's also the man who came up with the word eugenics. He coined the term. Um, So I had a lot of learning to do when I first started curating this collection about eugenics and what that means, and also about the history and ideas that were inherent in Victorian science that made eugenics a thing. Um, I think a lot of people, if they hear the word eugenics, they probably think about the Nazis and um, the horrors of the Holocaust. But actually, the story is a lot older, and it's a lot more British than that. Um, So it's it's been an interesting learning curve these last few years working with that collection. So eugenics has a a big history in the UK then? Absolutely. If you, um, it's not something to be proud of, but it is a British invention. Um, So Galton uh, probably was as famous in his lifetime as his very famous cousin, a man called Charles Darwin. And um, Galton added on to Darwin's theory of evolution his own particular genius. And what he said was, if it's the case that humans are like any other animal, then we should be able to breed better humans in the same way as we breed animals to suit our own purposes. Um, The thing that he was particularly interested in was intelligence, so the ability to measure, to quantify intelligence, just to work out how different people are intelligent. Um, And because that was what his idea was, um, and because of the time in which he was operating, his theories built on existing ideas to do with scientific racism. Um, These were ideas that came out of the Enlightenment in Europe, um, and they were ways of classifying different kinds of humans incorrectly, we now know. Um, And also probably the most dangerous thing about those ideas was that there was a hierarchy involved. Um, So having classified different human beings as being white or being European um, or being black and being African or being um, brown and from India like me, Um, there was an inherent hierarchy that was put in place by European scientists, which was that white European people were, they mistakenly believed better than everyone else. But it extended beyond Galton, didn't it? It impacted the entire scientific community. 
It did entirely. So Galton's ideas um, were, his ideas about eugenics weren't necessarily all that popular until kind of the turn of the 20th century, where they were very much the focus of a political moment. Um, But Galton's ideas um, to do with statistics, so he is um, essentially one of the founding fathers of modern statistics. He comes up with the uh, the principles of correlation, regression to the mean. Um, he's one of the founders of the School of Biometrics. Uh, so a lot of the work he did is fundamental to contemporary science and how it works. Um, and the thing that I'm mainly concerned about is that we need to be mindful of where his ideas were coming from and the ways in which they shape our ideas today. That doesn't mean to say that we throw all of Victorian science out the window and start again. Of course it doesn't. Um, these things are extraordinarily useful ways of approaching the world. Um, but I think that when we leave out those aspects to do with race science, um, it becomes, uh, that's where we start to trip up on things and we start to make mistakes. So Galton's ideas, um, eugenics and um, aside from eugenics, were hugely influential uh, at the at the end of the 19th century. Um, he was a well-established club, try that again, he was a well-established club man and uh so you know he was a member of the royal society he was a member of the society uh for the advancement of science and so he wasn't just some lone crank i think that's the most important thing we need to remember about him was that he is part uh of the scientific establishment in victorian england um and as such was a hugely influential person he um uh in in the years before he died he was instrumental in giving money to University College London in order to be able to set up the first ever eugenics records office. Um, and then when he died in 1911, he left in his will money for the first ever professorial chair of eugenics, uh, which was taken by a man called Carl Pearson, um, who was professor of statistics at UCL. Um, and uh, by by dint of that association with the university, that was Galton's way of legitimizing eugenics as a science. So he knew that um, he was one of the last in a line of gentleman scientists, like his cousin Charles Darwin. Um, and he felt that that was something that he didn't want to, he didn't, that the he, he was reluctant to take on that kind of amateur status. He wanted science to be a profession. Um, and in order for that to happen, one of the ways to do it was to have it associated with a university. Um, so his influence is not just simply in the ideas he came up with, but also the fact that um, th- his collaborations with universities in order to be able to get those ideas out there. So the idea wouldn't die with him? The idea definitely d- didn't die with him. In point of fact, the idea probably took off considerably bigger after his lifetime um, than during it. And uh, I think it's probably... Most historians uh, of of Galton and his history would say that it's fair to say that he would have been horrified by the things that, by the ideas and the the results that his ideas were put to. Um, So he would have been horrified by the sterilization uh, of people without their consent in the United States. He would be horrified um, by the sterilization and the extermination of people in the Holocaust. Um, My view on that is a little bit different insofar as he he may well have considered these to be the important and earth-shattering historical developments that we think them to be. I don't know whether he would necessarily have thought they were a bad thing. Um, but I yeah, I need to 
kind of explore that idea a little bit more just in terms of how he would feel about these things. Um, for a point of reference, uh, he there's, a, there's an example of an interview that he gave to a newspaper called The Jewish Chronicle. Um, so he's being interviewed by a Jewish journalist who asks him what he feels about the persecution of Jewish people in Russia. And Galton's response was that um, it's difficult to talk to any individual political moment, but that in general, um, this person, this Jewish person that he was speaking to, should be grateful that those weaker and lesser individuals within that person's race, as he saw it, uh, were being exterminated for them because it meant that the Jewish race would become stronger as a result. My goodness. Mm, It's pretty horrific stuff. Um, I feel like everything I talk about needs to come with a content warning. I've gotten Mm -hmm. terribly used to talking about all of these really horrible ideas. Um, But you can see the horror that's inherent in someone talking about scientific concepts being applied to people. And this was a question actually that that journalist asked him. And he said, don't you feel that that's that's a very immoral position to hold? And what Galton said was, it's neither immoral or moral. It is amoral. It has nothing to do with morality. (laughs) And that's where things start to become really dangerous. Because if scientists believe their work to be apolitical, or they believe that their work has nothing to do with morality, um, then that is where disaster strikes. And for how long was eugenics seen as a valid scientific study after Galton died? Uh, For a good few decades. Um, So it took off, uh, it took off probably more in the States than it did um, here in the UK. Uh, There was Charles Davenport setting up his eugenics records office in the States. And actually, probably what happened was that in the States, it was more um, taken in um, as Uh, a sort of a political philosophy and applied much more widely. Um, So you had people, um, including people with learning disabilities, but also lots of non-white people in the United States being subjected to sterilization without their consent because the goal there was to make sure that they didn't pass their their genes on to the next generation. Um, We didn't have any kind of legislation like that here in the UK particularly, although... Um, My colleague Debbie Chalice has argued that um, the Mental Deficiency Act of 1913, even though it wasn't a eugenic law per se, it kind of in effect, it had the same effect because what it was doing was that it was taking people with learning disabilities um, and also actually women, unmarried mothers, uh, were being locked up uh, in order to kind of take them out of society in ways that would prevent them from reproducing. So... It's, it's not the case that in the UK we, we don't have that same history. We certainly do. Um, it's possible that we're just not that au fait with the history and we're not very good at talking about it. Um, of course, probably the most disastrous effects of eugenics was, was the science that was put in place by the Nazis. Um, in the 1930s, uh, Professor Tom Shakespeare has talked about this, um, that, they, that the Nazis were essentially practising their eugenic science um, in terms of well, in terms of essentially of, of euthanizing disabled children in the run up to the Holocaust, so all of the techniques, the gas chambers, uh, the sterilization, everything that was done in the concentration camps had previously been tested on disabled people. Oh. So the the legacy of eugenics is 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 a horrendous one as far as as far as those atrocious acts are concerned. And at what point did the scientific community then? realised that the study couldn't go on? Um, 
This is going to come across as excessively harsh and excessively anti-science, and that is definitely not what I'm trying to do. Uh, I am a rationalist. I'm a firm believer in the value of science. Um, and it was certainly the case that in the aftermath of the Second World War, when it became horrifically clear what the Nazis had done, the scientific community and the world in general came together and said that mm, this should never be allowed to happen again, mm. um, uh, quite correctly. But the way that they did that was to say that these were not legitimate lines of science to pursue any further. The idea of race was essentially, it was exorcised, but it wasn't necessarily scientifically disproved. That came later with advances in the modern science of genetics. Um, so the more that we learned about the structure of our DNA and understood more accurately about how heredity works and how traits are passed from parents to children, um, the development of that science is what has disproved the idea that eugenics could exist. It's disproved the idea that you can control heredity because it turns out that heredity is considerably more complex than Galton would ever have understood it to be. Um, but that being said, a lot of Galton's ideas to do particularly um, with intelligence are still very much with us. So the idea that intelligence is somehow quantifiable, so all those IQ tests um, that, that people take um, in order to be able to just demonstrate numerically how clever they are, we still have those. Um, they're still, uh, and also it had effects um, because of the ways in which it was enacted in the early half of the 20th century. So probably the most influential person here is a guy called Cyril Burt, um, who's the first, he was again, professor at University College London, um, the first person to be knighted for his services to psychology, um, despite kind of infamously having faked a lot of his results. Um, but the thing about Burt is that he was responsible uh, for influencing the government in setting up grammar schools. So this idea that you have children who, at the age of 11, take a single test, and that determines what school they are then able to go to, um, that that's still very much with us. Um, you know, grammar schools, they, have a, they, they tend to have a moment sort of every, on a, like a five-year cycle, um, about whether they're going to come back or whether they're going to be a good thing or, or how, how good are they for society, how fair are they. And all of those discussions happen in the context of what is essentially eugenic thinking, which is the idea that... First of all, intelligence is quantifiable. Second of all, that it's innate and unchangeable. And also, then, what are we going to do about how we deal with people's education? So it's certainly the case that modern genetics has demonstrated, first of all, that there's no biological basis for the, for the scientific understanding of race, which is a really, really good thing and an important message to get across. Um, but in and of itself, science isn't the only thing that's going to save us here. We need to be mindful of our own history as well, and just to what degree Galton, his science and his ways of thinking have shaped our ideas today. Of course, UCL has a building named after him. Um, is that a problem when we look back on it now? Well, so um, I should I should uh, clarify, UCL has a lecture theatre named after Galton, um, and it's also got uh, it's also got a whole building named after Carl Pearson, who was as ardent a eugenicist, if possibly not more than Galton himself, um, and also a lecture theatre. Um, the we've also got a museum named after William Matthew Flinders Petrie, 
who was an Egyptian archaeologist um, called the founder, or the father of modern archaeology, uh, who also contributed a lot to um, the science of eugenics at UCL at the turn of the 20th century. And as a historian, I used to be kind of in two minds about this, because while it was the case that those buildings had those names, it meant that the names, to, to, I, I had thought that it meant that those names were kind of at the forefront of people's minds and it, it meant that it kept the story alive. But in the interim and in the last few years, what I have realized is that keeping the names of places of people who um, were involved in developing a science which meant that people who look like me were deemed to not be fit to live. I don't see how that can be anything other than phenomenally painful and inappropriate. Um, so the naming of buildings is a clear act of commemoration. Um, and I think that in that aspect, it is something that we shouldn't be doing. In a way, it's kind of the same thing as putting up a statue, because what mm. that's doing is saying these are people that we respect and we value their ideas and we are the kind of society that wants to hold these people up. And I just don't feel like, first of all, I don't feel like that is the society that we are. Um, but also, I just don't feel like it's a good thing to do. And that's, you know, happened very recently. And as statues are pulled down, buildings, lectures mm. get renamed. There are those, you know, you, you read them online saying that, that by doing so, it's erasing history. It's, it's almost hiding away history. Um, what would you say in response to that? First of all, I'd say that isn't how history works. <laughs> and second of all, I'd say that it was exactly the opposite. Um, so this is just based on my personal experience, but it's also based on the experience of teaching at a university and teaching the history and philosophy of science at a university, which is, as I said right at the beginning, Francis Galton is the most famous and influential Victorian scientist most people have never heard of. And to me... The fact that his story has allowed to be forgotten and also the story of scientific racism more widely has been allowed to be forgotten really is part of the problem. And um, it's, it, it, it seems like it's contrary to everything that I kind of work towards um, in terms of decolonizing and diversifying the curriculum and thinking about ways in which we can make our society more equitable, our education more equitable. Uh, but this really is one old dead white man that needs to be written back into the history books mm. um, because, you know, it's kind of like the byword um, in, well, in a lot of museums and with a lot of history or history programs, we talk about hidden histories. And that isn't actually inaccurate. But the point is that if these histories have been hidden, it means that someone hid them. And so in order to be able to bring them out into the clear light of day, that's the thing that is that is not erasing history. Being telling these stories is actually widening the frame and 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 telling a fuller picture. Um, and it's certainly been my experience that the more I learn about Galton and the more I learn about eugenic thinking, um, it's it's definitely the case that a lot of the history that I learned in school makes much more sense. Mm. But a lot of these conversations that that we're having and that lots of people are having when we see statues being teared down. Um, obviously, there's a lot of anger around the world at the moment uh, when we see what's happened to, to George Floyd and others in the US. It's shone this light on racism. Um, but 
in the midst of a conversation that's hugely about, you know, fundamental human rights, are we getting distracted? Um, is, is it taking away from um, these fatalities by having these conversations about science and its racist history in museums right now? Um, so I'm just going to take a second because this is mm. a it's such a painful thing um, and it's such a such a moment. So I think it's interesting, even the way that you phrased that question. I'm not having a go at you, um, uh, but I, it, the death of George Floyd has shone a light on the situation of racism. What it's for is white it's, people, hasn't it? For white people, exactly. exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So so black people uh, living in the United States and in the UK, brown people living in those places. Mm. We've known about this for a long time, and. That is, I think, why it's important to seize the moment while we can, while people, while white people, um, and while, uh, you know, the, um, the, the light of the media is, is shining on this idea, uh, to be able to seize the moment and say, you know what, the, these, the, these ideas have been here for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And actually, science and scientific thinking, in part, but mostly eugenic thinking, is the reason why we've ended up here. Um, the reason why uh, black people are unfairly deemed to somehow be inherently criminal is it has a very, very long history. It's part of the work that Galton did. Um, it's, it's, it goes, again, back to Enlightenment science and the idea of physiognomy that you can tell about people abstract things like their intelligence, their behavior, whether or not they are a criminal, simply by looking at them. It isn't the case that we have always been racist, Race is a relatively new invention um, in human history. And so is it the case that talking about science is more important than calling out uh, the the death of people unfairly at the hands of the police? Absolutely. No, those lives and commemorating those lives and calling attention to those actions is hugely important. But what we can also do is interrogate why these things happen. And the reason why they happen is the answer lies in part in in the history of science. And you've mentioned educational reforms and and what needs to happen. And what part do museums and their collections play in this? So it's tricky because, of course, museums are as much a tool of empire as as science ever was. Um, Museums were set up in order to be able to foreground these ideas um, and uh, well, science museums in particular, these p- very particular ways of thinking. Um, so it is it is extraordinarily tricky, and we have to acknowledge that um, the, the the very idea of a museum in and of itself is a colonial tool. So as a as a way of putting forward ideas to do with empire within science, and communicating that to people, um, and also the idea that science is somehow neutral in this circumstance. That's what a museum does. A museum legitimizes the ideas of the scientific mainstream. Um, And for most of the time, they do a really good job and they do a really important job, but they're not doing the job entirely. And um, as a museum curator, um, I am actually quite hopeful because our museums contain the objects which are testimony to these particular histories. The stories are there associated with the objects what we really need to start doing now is to start telling them more accurately. Um, 
And that's to do with uh, the histories that we relate. So first of all, being honest about the history of scientific racism, about the history of eugenics. It's about the language we use. So it's important that I call Galton a racist and a colonialist because those are the things that he was. And also those ideas were inherent in shaping his science and his scientific thinking. Um, so the role of museums, um, and I've looked into this kind of more broadly looking in, uh, at the idea of natural history museums, is to, rather than just focus on the science, um, to focus on the history of science and work out um, or sh- sort of shed greater light on the motivations of individual scientists um, and science as a community. Because I think while science museums are very good at communicating scientific principles, um, they're not great at the moment at interrogating why it is that scientists were doing what they were doing. Um, and that's a, it's a fairly straightforward thing to be able to do. Um, it just takes a bit of courage and a bit of gumption to be able to stand up and say, understanding race and white supremacy were motivating factors for a lot of the science that was happening in the 18th and 19th century. Um, And actually, we do need to be mindful of that and we need to reflect on that history because some of those ideas remain racist today in ways which are actively harmful to people. There's a lot of change that that needs to be seen. And I wonder also how much this current situation, the, the pandemic, will change the way Uh, we visit museums and I'm sure it will affect a lot of the ways that museums are run. Uh, yes, although how is it kind of really <laughs> remains to be seen at this point in time. We're, we're so in, in kind of a moment of flux. Um, one thing, though, that has become very clear is that those museums which have made the effort to make um, their objects, their research and their stories more accessible Uh, in digital formats are the ones that are really, really thriving at the moment Um, because what's happening is that their content is available to people without having to step foot inside the museum doors. Um, And so the great thing about that is that that means that hopefully museums will be encouraged to make that content accessible to people just beyond that kind of immediate community um, in ways which are which are hopefully a lot more accessible in, and engaging than we've been able to do at present. Um, the other thing that museums are doing is uh, that they are, in, in the light of this most recent resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement, is acknowledging their own racism, their own role um, in perpetuating these ideologies. Um, so a really good example is um, the, the Tenement Museum on the Lower East Side of New York City, They've always been a very politically actively minded museum um, and they've um, they've made it very clear uh, that they have listened and taken on the message um, of the problems to do with race in 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 US society. Um, and UK museums are starting to do it as well. So Somerset House, I think, has just put out a statement, um, mm. which I think is hugely commendable. So mm. the more that we all start to realise that this is to do with all of us and um, scientists, people who work in museums, people who are science communicators, people who are public historians, the responsibility is on all of us to start telling these stories more accurately and to acknowledge you know, the, the privilege and the position that we're in. Mm. And of course, UCL are renaming the Gotham uh, Lecture Theatre and, and a couple of other buildings, aren't they? And it it's, it seems like we are at the, the very start of something. Yes, I hope so. So, yeah, UCL um, uh, announced, uh, the announcement went out last week that they were considering renaming the buildings. And to me, that really is 
Um, I'm very pleased because it's something that people have wanted for a long time and it's definitely the right thing to do. Um, mm. But I hope that, that my community at the university also realises that this is this is really just the beginning, that we've got mm. so much more work to do when it comes to this, these ideas and these ways of thinking. That was Subhadra Das discussing eugenics, race science and how pulling down statues and renaming buildings is actually revealing history instead of erasing it. In the magazine this month, we find out why cheese is so tasty, learn the benefits of cold water swimming and get a dermatologist to look after our skin. As always, there are loads more science stories inside and available on sciencefocus.com. And if you like what you've just listened to, then please leave us a rating or a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you and goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.